Welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Lakecox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode of our new Government Affairs podcast, Council Vice President of Government Affairs Blair Bartlett interviews Congresswoman Erin Houchin of Indiana. We're then joined by Government Affairs SVP Joel Copperud for an update on the Council's advocacy work, including movement on PBM transparency, cannabis, and the presidential election. Give it a listen. Blair, Joel, it's great to talk with you again. I'm excited to hear who you have on tap for this uh, member of Congress interview. We've got Blair sitting down with Representative Aaron Houchin from Indiana. Blair, why don't you give us a little uh, intro? Yeah. So Congresswoman Erin Houchin represents the 9th District of Indiana. Um, it's about, I think it's like maybe a two-hour drive from where I grew up. So kind of similar, you know, from similar backgrounds, similar Midwest uh, families. And I wanted her, I wanted our members to hear from Congresswoman Houchin because not only is she on our two main committees of jurisdiction, um, House Financial Services, and House and Workforce. Um, she has an interesting background. You'll notice kind of a few themes throughout that, you know, I think should be highlighted for our members, and that's a, a drive to service in, in her kind of her hustle, um, you know, which is not unlike a, an insurance broker. And she does point out, um, and, and I didn't script it this way at all, you know, the, the amount of bipartisanship that exists in Congress and that isn't covered. Um, and so it's, I, I'm really excited for, um, you know, to, to kind of have our, our listeners hear this, this interview. All right, well, let's give it a listen. So I'm here with Congresswoman Erin Houchin, who has, who represents the 9th District of Indiana. You are a freshman member of Congress. Um, let's explore your background a little bit. Um, Explain, I guess, kind of what is the 9th District of Indiana? What is the geography of that? Sure. The 9th District of Indiana is like the southeast corner of the state. So the far left part of my district is uh, Monroe County, which includes Bloomington uh, and Indiana University. If you draw a line from IU over to Ohio and from IU down to Kentucky, I have everything in between. So it's about 18 counties. It's a very rural area. Um, My biggest city is a second class city. That's Jeffersonville. It's right across the river from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, great. And are you you from that district? Yes, I've always lived in the ninth district, went to IU. I grew up in Scott County in Scottsburg. My dad was a a dentist. My mom was a stay-at-home mom for most of that time. And my dad told me I could be anything I wanted to be when I grew up, just not a dentist. <laughs> so <laughs> I went into politics. It's, uh, but uh, he loved his patients. Uh, he just didn't like the practice of dentistry. So I think that gave me a perspective of serving the community, which is part of you know my drive for service today. Okay. And let's talk about that drive to service, if we can. You, this isn't your first foray into politics. Um, you have been in public service. Your husband's been in public service. Can you um, tell us a little bit about your background, what you kind of did before you got to Congress? Sure. I'll try to make this yeah. as, as quick as possible. It's a, it's a long and sorted story. But um, I started as an intern in the Indiana State Senate in 1999 as a senior at IU. That's where I met my husband. He was a house intern. Um, he was the only house intern I met. Uh, we became friends. Uh, and... 
Um, after the internship, I loved being part of that policy making process so much. I called the state house uh, staff, House and Senate, every Friday for six weeks in a row until they gave me a job. I got a job as a legislative assistant, uh, and about midway through the year, uh, I got a job offer uh, to make more money serving as um, a statewide elected official in a bigger role. Um, that was the worst year of my life, uh, work-wise, <laughs> and it almost ruined me on politics completely. So after I graduated from IU, I worked, um, my degree was psychology. I worked in child services and for various nonprofits dealing with children in foster care and uh, in the child services system. Um, my husband and I um, got married. Uh, he was a law student. I was very active politically, uh, volunteering for young Republicans on a variety of campaigns uh, and going through every type of leadership program I could, you could imagine. Women's Campaign School at Yale University, campaigns and elections training in DC, uh, the Indiana Leadership Forum, the Luger Series, you, know, you name it, if it was a candidate type training, um, I was going to it with the intention that I thought maybe one day I would help someone else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I ran my husband's campaign. He was our prosecutor elected in our county for 16 years. He's now a superior court judge. Our kids um, have always been involved politically. I have a 19-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 14-year-old, two girls and a boy. And when my we first started, when I ran my husband's first campaign, our kids were, our daughters were two years old and an infant. I would literally Jeez. load them up in the car and take them knocking on doors um, for him. Um, and then um, I ran for district chairman of the Republican Party in Indiana for the 9th Congressional District where I serve today. I was nine months pregnant with my son. I ran for that uh, because I think we build our communities from school boards to Washington, D.C. and not the other way around. So I ran for district chair and won that race. Uh, Saturday gave birth Monday to my son. Um, and then was that, that put me back on the trajectory that I am currently on, which led to me uh, getting my master's in political management from GWU to working for U.S. Senator Dan Coats, uh, which led me to run for the legislature, which led me here. Okay. That, that's a lot that's involved while also raising three kids. Yeah, I remember when I was, when I was studying, you know, in the master's program, I'd put the kids to bed like at nine o'clock and study till three in the morning and get up and be a, a stay-at-home mom. And I really thought I would you know, be behind the scenes. I went to GSPM and they would say 90% of people in this program will get a job offer before they graduate. And I was in the middle of Southern Indiana thinking I'm the 10% and literally midway through that program, I got a call from our US Senator Dan Coates looking for a regional director for the Southeast. And uh, my husband said, listen to what they have to say. Don't, don't take the job, just hear them out. I was a stay at home, you know, stay at home with the kids still. Uh, they offered me the job um, and I took it and called him on the way home and told him. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. And it sounds, you know, like it is, um, you know, you have that public ser service mentality. You have kind of that go-getter hustle, um, you know, mind frame, and that hasn't stopped. That's true. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I ran for the state Senate in the first place. My senator was a 26-year incumbent um, on the other side of the aisle. He was a Democrat. The district was 
you know, barely Republican. It was like 50 and a half percent Republican, but he just was not active on behalf of the district. And and that to me was disappointing. So yeah, it's a go-getter attitude and I don't really take no for an answer. I usually tell my staff, don't tell me no, tell me how or why. Um, And that's the stance I took as a legislator. And still today, you know, I'll go to the end of the runway and you know, try to go a little bit farther um, if it's an issue that I'm deeply yeah. passionate about and, and, you know, feel um, that it's that important to keep fighting for. Yeah. And you're still, you're still busy. You were not on one committee, not on two. You're on three. And there's even a little bit more. You're also president of your I'm the class? elected leader for my class. Yeah. So we've got a president, um, a policy chair, a steering committee rep, and then an elected leader. And I was elected leader for my class. So I represent the freshman class um, every fly-in week at the leadership table um, on behalf of the group that sent me there yeah. to represent them. Great. And then what what three committees are you on? I am on House Financial Services, okay. Education and Workforce, and the Rules Committee. Yeah. So I would say I know what committees you're on, but... <laughs> um, Explain the, I guess, the scheduling commitment on rules. I mean, I think, you know, folks tend to understand, you know, committees, it's committee hearings, you know, maybe a couple times a week, maybe some subcommittee hearings, but the rules committee requires, it's a little bit more, it's a, more of a time commitment. Yeah, so the rules committee meets every fly-in um, day, you know, the weeks that we have a fly-in, the rules committee will meet the first day. It's either usually a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, we start at four o'clock and can go until nine at night or three in the morning it's it's whenever the work gets done so if we have a really contentious bill like on the debt limit um the um i think it was the there was an energy bill and a border bill that both took hr1 and hr2 both took significant amounts of time it reminds me honestly of when i served in the legislature because you can sit in you know the senate chamber for hours upon hours until the wee hours of the night when you're you know, trying to get legislation done at the end of a legislative session. And, you know, sometimes we're in the rules committee for literal hours. There are no time limits. Uh, there are no um, no guardrails, really, for how much time that's going to take. It takes whatever time it takes, and, and you're there for it. Yeah, yeah. I, is it wrong that my first thought is, like, I hope they give you snacks? They feed us very okay, good. well. They do feed us, <laughs> yes. Not yes. not that you have to sit there for hours, but I hope you get drinks and snacks. Yes, we they do feed us very well. <laughs> good, uh, good. Which is good, because we're there for a long time. Yeah. We have to yeah. be sustained. And I know we're excited at, at CIEB to have you on two committees of jurisdiction for our issues. Um, House Financial Services for the things like flood insurance, terrorism risk insurance, and, um, you know, education workforce committee, things, you know, like, um, you know, if there are amendments to ERISA, um, employee benefits issues. So it's, it's great for us. Um, So so thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. And Uh, I think too, you know, particularly with the, with the labor issues and, and healthcare issues um, in particular, you know, I, I was also a small business owner, uh, in between the time that I ran for Congress the first time and got elected <laughs> to Congress the second time. So some of those challenges, um, um, I carry a unique perspective on that I think has been extremely helpful in that committee work too. Yeah, we say it all the time that, um, you know, it's less than 8% um, of the members of Congress have experience in the insurance industry. Um, and that's, you know, I know those numbers are a little bit higher for, for small business owners, but it's, 
you don't realize um, the lack of functional experience um, that that members of Congress. It makes your job harder. A little, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we like to call it education advocacy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is a lot of educating. Um, and what um, what are going to be your priorities this Congress? Well, in the Financial Services Committee, I'm working on a few things. One is just increasing access to capital, particularly for smaller retail investors, but also small business owners that small and medium sized business owners to uh, seek investments um, up to $150 million to grow their businesses without having to go through an IPO and all the red tape that comes with that. That's Regulation A+. Um, They really probably should call it Regulation A++ because Regulation A++ raised the threshold and we're raising it again. Um, But that's, you know, those kinds of things are important to me in terms of financial services. I I care deeply about trying to fix this flood insurance issue. Um, You know, I say if flood insurance isn't working in Indiana and it's not working in Louisiana, probably there's something we need to do to address it. So uh, that and the housing issue, just trying to increase access to affordable housing um, and, and for uh, single-family homes. Um, those first-time home buyers who are really having a hard time finding a home or building a home that is in a, a price that they can afford. And so those are issues within that committee that I'm, you know, working on. And then also, you know, figuring out this cryptocurrency and digital asset space and trying to make sure that we get a good regulatory structure uh, so that um, we are not under threat or the U.S. dollar isn't under threat from other countries. In terms of the healthcare work on the HELP subcommittee, Um, I did a couple of bills in Indiana dealing with insurance. One of them was um, increasing access to Medicare supplement plans for adults over 60 or under 65 who have a qualifying disability. We were the 31st state in Indiana to do that and I did have to work very uh, strongly hand in hand with all the different stakeholders trying to come up with a an end result that wouldn't cost you know any particular group more than another in terms of subsidizing that program. So I was proud to get that done. Um, In addition to that, the cost of healthcare is way too much. Uh, We currently also have um, federal agencies that are really over-regulating. They're putting in in requirements, for instance, in my district, I visited some of the health care facilities that they're requiring, you know, a certain number of staff to patient ratios that are not possible in our current economy. So um, those issues and then reducing the cost of healthcare and um, onshoring as much of our uh, drug supply chain as we can so that, you know, I've got a manufacturer in my district that is a drug manufacturer and they are fully reliant on a lab in Wuhan, China for um, some of their component parts that they can make in the United States if we give them the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Okay. Last two questions. We always kind of end the podcast with these two. Um, Who's the member from the other side of the aisle that that you work best with or that you recently worked with? Um, We like to show that members of Congress do work bipartisanly. It does I will say I talk often when I go home uh, that this place is more cooperative and collaborative than I expected it to be and and it's more functional than I thought you know coming in and um, we've passed more than 40 bills with 86 percent bipartisan support and that doesn't often get noticed. Um, I'm working on a couple of bills with Julia Brownlee uh, that's a dyslexia uh, legislation piece of legislation and then with Judy Chu on um, a 
foster care uh, bill dealing with some workforce issues related to that and just making sure when kids age out of foster care they're they have the ability to um, have their diploma that they have that support i can't imagine my 19 year old daughter not having me or support system as she's trying to navigate her next steps and our foster kids are aging out at 18 with without any support in some cases so uh, certainly um, looking forward to working with representative chu on that uh, the last thing I would mention is we took a bipartisan uh, trip to um, with the speaker overseas. We went to Jordan, Israel, Italy, and Egypt, and it was bipartisan. So Steny Hoyer was on the trip, uh, Jared Moskowitz, Greg Landsman, and um, Gottheimer, Representative Gottheimer. And that was a great opportunity to spend some time with our Democrat counterparts on the other side of the aisle, uh, and also uh, Jimmy Panetta. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was a, just a really yeah. great group um, of Republicans and Democrats. We had a, um, a good experience working together on issues like support for Israel. And that has been um, that's been a, you know, a meaningful experience for me. Yeah. And finally, what's the number one issue that you're hearing from constituents in the district? Things you get stopped for at the gas station or the grocery store? You know, what, what uh, the you economy uh, and inflation certainly is still on the minds of my constituents. And then the border, just a wide open border and the consequences that come with that. You know, we just heard in committee this week in Rules Committee, the Halt Fentanyl Act. Um, we have, um, we've lost 220 uh, Hoosiers in my district uh, to fentanyl overdoses. That's 220 sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, friends, family, and that's too many. And that's the direct result of having an open border and all the fentanyl that's coming across with it. So um, our law enforcement officers are dealing with it. You know, we're 1,200 miles from the border in Indiana, but we are a border state. Um, that Those are things that are keeping our um, constituents up at night. And then thirdly, um, you know, the district is very, very... Uh, conservative. It's a it's a very red district, um, and so some of these policy positions that my constituents perceive as woke or radical or far left, um, those are things that concern them too. And for me, you know, that translates to overregulation by the government in many ways, but also you know more locally to that is um, the federal government deciding things like. Um, the Biden um, Department of Education making decisions that that really place um, young females, you know, at risk in, in many circumstances. And so those kinds of issues are what my constituents are concerned about. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your time. I'm sure you have five subcommittee hearings to go I, to. I'm on six subcommittees. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you, Blair. I really yeah. appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thanks for sitting uh, here. All right. Well, that was great. I loved hearing from her. Um, what really stood out to me before we go to you guys is how just independent minded she was as a as a stay at home mom. She kind of took the reins of things that were important to her and just ran with it and came home and said, hey, I'm going back to work. You know, let's figure this out. So, you know, just from a working mom perspective, it was really cool to hear her. Um, but I'd love to hear from you guys, Blair, Joel, immediate immediate thoughts on the interview. Yeah, I really liked it. She didn't talk about this, but I really like that she's a member of the Republican Main Street Coalition or Partnership. It's a group of moderate, pragmatic Republicans that are working to get things done. 
They don't get sucked into the culture war issues. They are not looking to be divisive. They're working, they're working to find solutions to the day-to-day -day problems. And she belongs to that group. And like Blair said earlier in the podcast, she sits on our committees of jurisdiction and she is working across the aisle to find the right solutions. She mentioned Congresswoman uh, Julia Brownlee from California. I love Julia Brownlee. Julia is not uh, on, on, she's not aggressive on a lot of our issues, but she's one of those pragmatic members that wants to get things done and that avoids the culture war issues and likes to lock arms. And, you know, I just really appreciate that everyone that we've had so far talks about bipartisanship and just moving the country forward, focusing on inflation, focusing on healthcare costs, you know, the kitchen table issues that make people, that really impact people's lives. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a great, I thought she was great. Yeah. And when, you know, when Joel wanted to do this podcast, um, you know, in, in theory, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be great. And I was like, oh, what about all the work? Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, we are bringing, you know, we're kind of shedding light on those members of Congress who are in Congress because they want to get things done. They are there to legislate, not to tweet, not to, you know, fight um, on ideological lines. And, and I hope that, you know, we were conveying that and, and these interviews are conveying that, that we're showing, you know, our members, um, our member firms that members of Congress who want to get things done do exist. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny, like we are in the thick of the debt ceiling stuff right now, which is really highlighting the toxicity of Washington, but all the issues that we're focused on are that like it's broad bipartisan support it's not just a little bit um ppm reform can we just go into ppm reform real quick that's you know that's been that's our number one legislative issue right now uh from the direction of cb the direction of our advocacy committee is bringing transparency to the pbm marketplace the same way that it's forced on uh, on, on brokers and we believe that current law actually requires pbms to be transparent tra transparent with their revenue streams um, they've been able to avoid those requirements. And so we just want Congress to clarify uh, that they are actually uh, required to be transparent. And we believe that if they if they had abided by these rules, um, it would bring competition to the marketplace that doesn't exist now. Right now, there's three major PBMs that control 85% of the market. Uh, but it would also add real teeth to the reforms that also has broad bipartisan support, which is rebating reform, spread pricing reform, um, a lot of our members will say that without the transparency requirements that we're proposing, those reforms aren't going to be effective because a lot of these PBMs, which are very complex or complex entities, are just going to hide the cost. They're going to transition some of these fees to affiliates or move things around, um, and it's really going to uh, weaken the reforms that they're trying to, to implement in these other areas. Uh, so and what I'm talking about, the, bipart the, the transparency requirements, that's got broad bipartisan support. So... Um, we had movement in the health committee, the Senate health committee last week on an amendment offered by Senator Roger Marshall. You know, the thing with um, with PBM reform that that we're finding is it, it goes over several committees of jurisdiction and it depends on how you want to attack it. Um, are you coming it from a Medicare, Medicaid perspective? That's one committee. If you're coming it from an ERISA perspective, that's a different committee. Um, and so each, you know, House Ways and Means, um, House Energy and Commerce, House Education and Workforce, and even House Oversight Committee have all had hearings um, on PBM transparency. And so, you know, we're thinking that the momentum is there for something to be done in the House and Senate. Um, but not quite sure what it will be in, in talking with Senate committee staffers. You know, they were saying that, you know, something has to be done. 
Um, yeah, Senator Schumer has given clear directives to uh, his committee chairs <clears throat> saying, I want a vote on PBM reform in the Senate. He initially said in May, he's now saying in June, but we know that the pressure is in the Senate to get something done. Uh, the vote in the health committee was broadly bipartisan. There were only three three senators voting against it. Uh, so we can, we can see the traction. As Blair said, there's so many committees of jurisdiction. This train has left the station and it's moving through all of those committees. And we've got lots of opportunities to influence it. The next one that we're focusing on is the House Education and Workforce Committee. Uh, we have several meetings with them this week. Um, so we are pushing and pushing to make sure the language in there is exactly how we want it. Um, that's a, that's an uphill battle, but I think that 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 we're going to get we're going to whatever gets done is going to be in the right direction. It's going to be a positive movement for our industry. So, and it's it's funny that you know this is just the nature of politics. You know, Senate Help Committee is is chaired by Senator Bernie Sanders, um, and the ranking member is Senator Bill Cassidy. And you know, Senator Bernie Sanders, you know, has this you know has long fought for universal health care, um, you know, which which we have fought back against, but, you know, politics is politics. And now he is for our transparency, uh, our compensation. And, and so it's, it, it's interesting. Yeah, it's funny. He made it very clear when he took the helm of the chairmanship, he understands that the political uh, alignment is not there for Medicare for all. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to, <clears throat> you know, I mean, he's going to continue the fight for Medicare for all, but he knows he wants to get things done. And his focus was to lower healthcare costs and to do so, by bringing on reforms to the PBM industry. And that directly aligns with our initiatives. So uh, we, politics makes strange bedfellows. Yes. <laughs> you know, she, that Midwest background, you know, you just, you wanna make things affordable for the people that are living their lives and raising families, um, you know, putting children through school, putting, you know, significant others through school or, you know, just trying to buy groceries and, and healthcare costs are, are a part of that. And it's growing and growing every year. And so that's, you know, I know that is going to be a focus for her, whatever she can do to make life a little bit easier for, for everyday Americans is a goal. Yeah. All right. Switching gears a little bit um, on our PC agenda, we have been tracking cannabis for a long time. Joel, I've heard there's a little bit of movement there. Um, can you update us? Yeah, our focus has forever just been on the Safe Banking Act, which is just, it does nothing to further the legalization of cannabis. What it does is it just makes those states that have legalized it, um, it makes them a bit able to access the financial services industry, which right now they cannot because it is barred, it's still illegal at the federal level. Uh, of course, we want to make sure that our members um, can offer their services to those, those entities which they would be able to under the Safe Banking Act. Unfortunately, the last Congress didn't get it done. The House passed it six times. It never made it to the Senate floor last year. Uh, so we are at new Congress now. Um, and strangely, the uh, dynamics have flipped. Now the movement is in the Senate. And the question is, what's going to happen in the House? But Blair has been pretty close to the activities in the Senate this year. So Blair, what's the latest? Yeah, so Senate held, held a hearing um, and it has been reintroduced. Um, and I think it's, you know, Senator Schumer wants to be helpful. Um, they know that they do need to move something. And I don't think the House will move until the Senate does. Um, I think there's been so many false starts with the House that they're going to make sure that the Senate is ready to move um, before they are. It's, you know, relatively the the same language that's been passed. There are some, you know, we, we've we made sure that insurance agents and brokers are mentioned. Um, and, and so there's just, you know, some some few little tweaks on languages, but, um, you know, it's 
I don't, I don't know. I go back and forth on on seeing if it will happen, if it will not. And I think the Senate schedule is, you know, partly to blame. Um, they have to go through a lot of nominations. And so that 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 puts a damper on on getting things done. And cannabis has been, um, you know, hasn't been able to move a lot of times because of the Senate schedule and how they move. Yeah, it's um, really interesting. The biggest impediment in the Senate historically has been they've got they've got the 60 votes that you need to get to get to the Senate floor. Uh, the challenge has been really, it's been a circular firing squad on the left. Uh, it's been the progressives holding up the moderates and it's been, you know, Cory Booker has taken the reins of, of making sure that the social justice issues around cannabis are addressed before the banking issues. Um, he will make it very clear that the first bill that the Congress passes on cannabis is not going to be a banking bill. It is going to be a get out of jail if you're incarcerated in a state that has legalized it. It is going to make sure that your record is expunged if you have a criminal record in a state for that's cannabis related in a state that has legalized it. Um, and he will tell you an interesting story that when he first ran for mayor of Newark, one of the number one issues was that it's a jobs issue because people in, his, in Newark, New Jersey, a lot of them, his constituents struggled finding a job because they had a had a, a, a criminal record because of marijuana use. So for him, it's personal. Uh, but it sounds like an agreement has been struck between him and the chairman of the banking committee, Sherrod Brown, um, and, and the safe banking um, advocates, where they will add some language that will appease uh, the social justice movement um, and add that to the, the safe banking uh, bill and hopefully reach 60 in the Senate. Time, as, as Blair said, the schedule is a big question mark, so hopefully they can navigate that successfully. And then will that be able to pass the Republican-controlled House? Um, leader Chairman McHenry has seems like he's open to it. Uh, and, you know, we know that it will pass with broad bipartisan support. It will probably get just as many, just as much support as it did in the last Congress. Uh, but will it, will it get enough support to make it onto the House agenda? That's the big question. Yeah. Um, so wait and see mode, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I have been cautiously optimistic for many years now. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Much like flood insurance reform. Yeah, cautiously optimistic. Oh, any like, any movement there, Blair? No, 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 no. not now. <laughs> no, no. And I think, and I think, um, you know that that leads us right into, um, you know, we saw two recent announcements on presidential candidates. One of them being Tim Scott, who's ranking member um, on the Senate Banking Committee. Um, and then you have Chairman Sherrod Brown um, of the Senate Banking Committee, and, and he's up for re-election um, this cycle. And so I think, you know, why the Senate Banking Committee did have a hearing on cannabis, um, that might, those those two things might slow down activity um, in the Senate Banking Committee. But I know that we are excited to see, I'm, I should say I am, I am excited to see um, uh, Tim Scott announcing his his intention to run for president um, because of his insurance background. It's great for us. Yeah, we should be, <laughs> the industry should be thrilled. I mean, he, he's not a moderate, he's conservative. Yeah. But he is a, he, he's a, he was a state farm or all state agent. He was all state. Yeah, I think he was all state. Uh, yeah. but he's from our industry. He knows our industry inside and out. I don't, I don't know when we last had a presidential candidate who comes directly from our field. Um, so if you're a diehard conservative and love the business and want someone that's in office that knows the intricacies of our our industry, Tim Scott is your man. Uh, it's I mean, it's a, it's a crowded field. And right now, you know, with DeSantis versus Trump, that's going to dominate, I think, a lot of the airwaves. Trump's base is really high. He's got like 40 percent, 40 percent of the party who is a diehard Trump. Can DeSantis crack that? 
Uh, and they are saying like Tim Scott's route is to go around Trump, uh, not through him, whereas DeSantis is directly trying to challenge that 40% base. And then of course you've got Nikki Haley in there, who's interestingly also from you know South Carolina, and South Carolina also is the reason that Joe Biden is president. So South Carolina has real players in all this. All of a sudden, they're going to be one of the first, if not the first, voting state in the Democratic primary this year. Uh, but it's but you know it's it's going to be a crowded field and fascinating to see how this all plays out. But I mean the presidential season is now we are in it, and it is going to dominate the congressional agenda. Um, I think. Moving forward, once we get past this debt ceiling issue, we will focus on federal funding of the, of the government. Uh, but a lot of the stuff that Congress gets done is going to be intended to fuel the national campaign and how how this all plays out, um, you know, remains to yeah. be seen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is always so interesting, you guys. Thank you so much for filling us in. And uh, we'll we'll hear from the next one soon. Great. Thanks, Thanks. Andy. That was Congresswoman Erin Houchin and the Council's Government Affairs team. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can find more politics and risk at leadersedge.com.